Hello, my fellow Astorians. With season two of The Witcher out on Netflix right now, here in December 2021, I wanted to draw your attention to a side project I have called The Podcast of Surprise, where we talk about The Witcher books and the show when it's in season. If you haven't checked it out, maybe this will get you interested. If you didn't notice or haven't watched yet, the first episode of season two has Christopher Hivju, aka Tormund. So that's pretty fun. And it's called A Grain of Truth, both the episode and the short story, which just happens to have the same initials, (laughs) A-G-O-T. The story was written all the way back in the late 80s. In general, the Witcher stories and novels are very irreverent combination of convention-breaking, silliness, and seriousness, all at the same time. Each episode of the Podcast of Surprise comes with a thorough synopsis at the beginning, so you don't have to have read the short story. The episode is pretty similar to the short stories, so it'd be easy for you to follow along either way. And I'm joined by my co-hosts Kyle and McCall. McCall, you would know pretty well. She's done a lot of quotes for us and does quotes for the Podcast of Surprise, along with giving her excellent thoughts on each story. And if you enjoy it, head over to the Podcast of Surprise, also on Anchor Spotify, and enjoy the rest of the episodes. There's a grain of truth in every fairy tale, said the Witcher quietly. Love and blood, they both possess a mighty power. Wizards and learned men have been racking their brains over this for years, but they haven't arrived at anything except that... That what, Geralt? It has to be true love. Geralt the Witcher is traveling near the town of Miravel in Redania when he notices birds circling. These birds will draw his attention and draw him into adventure and will have a thematic presence as well. Telling Roach, I don't think the birds are circling there for nothing. He goes to investigate, and indeed they are not. He finds the body of an armorer and a younger woman and launches into Sherlock Geralt mode. Both have been killed by blows to the neck, but were not robbed. Seeing this, Geralt immediately prepares his silver sword, makes sure his witcher medallion on its silver chain is free, and keeps his eyes on the tree line. And Roach doesn't like it. The girl has an indigo rose pinned to her, an important clue. Of note to him as well, they were off the main trail, so he decides to see what lies on this side of the road, for perhaps there's a job waiting for him. Soon enough, he sees a red-tiled tower in the distance and coming down a small hill, a wall around it. As he's noticing that the trees have grown into the wall over time, he looks up. At that same moment, he felt a prickle along his neck, as if an invisible soft creature had latched onto his neck, lifting the hairs there. He was being watched. A girl is standing atop the hill from whence he just ascended, and though he waves and says greetings, she runs off. She's wearing a long white dress that doesn't restrict her movement despite the forest, and her eyes are huge and black. He's pretty sure that he's just seen a Rusalka. Roach really doesn't like it. He finds a gate and is immediately surprised to find that it is magical. Just touching it, the handle causes it to open by itself. They go in. Geralt ties Roach to a pillar and walks toward the mansion, noticing great disrepair. The owner of the place cares not much for the outer decor, not the dolphin plinth marble fountain that no longer flows, nor the flaked paint, nor overgrown walkways. But when Geralt notices the beautiful indigo rosebush and goes in for a sniff, the door to the mansion flies open. The creature was humanoid and dressed in clothes which, though tattered, were of good quality and not lacking in stylish and useless ornamentation. His human form, however, reached no higher than the soiled collar of his tunic, for above it loomed a gigantic, hairy, 
bear like uh, hair, yeah? bear like hair with enormous ears, a, p- a pair of wild eyes and terrifying jaws full of crooked fangs in which a red tongue flickered like flame. After some excellent banter, this fearsome beast turns out to be not so beastly after all, and quite amiable and a gracious host besides. He's quite stunned, doubly so, for not only did this white-haired man draw his sword extremely fast and gracefully, but he's not a brave man pushing away fear. He's legitimately not afraid of him. That makes the creature curious and interested in Geralt, as well as a bit wary. Novellan is the beast's name. He invites Geralt to come in and feast. It's nothing to him, he says, as the house produces food when he demands it and sets about to prove this. A feast does indeed appear. They dig in and swap stories. Both of them are wary about sharing certain facts regarding their true nature, and both of them notice the other's attempts to brush off or steer the conversation away from those sensitive topics. Geralt does what he often does, speak less, and by doing so, encourages others to talk more. However, Novellan is concerned Geralt is there to kill him, because he's a monster and Geralt is a witcher. But Geralt tells Novellan he knows he's not a monster, but cursed. Novellan was born human in this house, and his family has owned it for generations. They were not good people, using the place to terrorize the area. His elders died before their time, and the gang was more than he could handle as a very young man. They led him more than he led them. One day they raided the temple to a dark god and coerced Novellan into raping a priestess, who promptly cursed him and killed herself whilst yelling that he was a monster in human skin and about love and blood. So soon he'll be a monster in monster's skin. Her death perhaps ensured the power of the curse, which turned him into the beast he is now. In a rage at discovering his new form, he slew some and the rest ran off. The servants and the gang, that is. He scared off the few people who came to the house from then on, until one day a man picked at the blue rose bush, a bit like Geralt had done. This other man begged for his life, saying he was only picking them for his daughter. Novellan, in desperation and thinking of fairy tales concerning girls freeing men from curses, demanded this man's daughter. It was all he could think to do. Huh? (laughs) After hearing that the man's daughter is eight, he backed off that plan and felt bad and gave the man a small fortune instead. Quite a reversal. The man went and told his friends, apparently, about this adventure. Thus began a several years long stretch where men would give their daughters to Novellan for a year in exchange for large amounts of wealth. Twist! According to Novellan, he treats them well and most of them come from awful situations. After all, they're the daughters of men willing to sell them in the first place. So, hmm... According to him, the girls had a good time with him and were enriched. But there was no true love, no sign of the curse being broken. Recently, however, things have changed. Men still bring their daughters, but now they're turned away, such as the two Geralt found dead not long before. They had come for this offer. Twist again, Novellan no longer wants the curse to be broken. He has a partner now, the one Geralt saw run off into the forest. He claims it's true love this time. Geralt tells him that Verena, his love, is probably a Rusalka. Novellan says he suspected something like that, but prefers not to think about it too much. This is part of why he doesn't want to break the curse. He's afraid Verena won't love him if he's a regular human. Not to mention the house started obeying his commands when the curse began. So if the curse ends, no more food and drink with a mere banged fist. 
But he is troubled in part due to the onset of awful nightmares and worries his behavior will deteriorate. He thinks perhaps the curse is getting worse and that Geralt maybe will need to come back, but as a witcher, not a guest. Novella knows that if he fully becomes a monster, he'll need to be put down. Novella doesn't know about the two that were killed. And Geralt spares him the news because he doesn't think their deaths are connected to him or Verena the Rusalka. Ironically, Novellan warns him that the area is horrible and dangerous and to move on quickly. Novellan gives Roach some pats while Geralt gets ready to leave. And for once in the story, the mayor is pleased. Novellan claims that animals like him. Even his cat, Glutton, came back and lived with him when the curse was fresh. Geralt heads out and spends the night on a high hill with his sword on his knees. In the middle of the night, he noticed the glow of a fire far away in the valley. He heard mad howling and singing, and a sound which could only have been the screaming of a tortured woman. He heads toward the sound, after daylight comes. There are charred bones amidst ash. Something hisses at him from the crown of an enormous oak, and he doesn't even bother to look, because it can't be the thing he's concerned about. It can't be whatever he watched the tree line for when he first found the two unlooted bodies. Traveling further, later at midday, Roach is again spooked, this time by what Geralt refers to as an ordinary devil's ring, which is a circle of mushrooms. Suddenly, realization strikes. Roach liked Nivellen. What then disturbed his horse so much when they first approached? It must have been Verena, but wait, a Rusalka would not have that effect either. Horses are not scared of Rusalka. Geralt was on the lookout for a creature capable of killing that armor and his daughter and had eliminated Verena from the list of possible culprits because a Rusalka, which is basically a nymph or a fairy, cannot maul people to death. More realization like the dawn itself comes to Geralt. It's all connected. There isn't something outside the manor menacing the countryside as Novellan believes. The menace is coming from within the house, as well as menacing Novellan himself. Verena is not a Rusalka. She is the source of Novellan's ever-worsening nightmares. She is the murderer of those two travelers and the woman Geralt heard screaming. She will kill again. And that means this is also no ordinary devil's ring. Thanks, Roach. He returns and finds her on the white marble fountain. She has been drinking Novellan's blood and singing, but her lips are not moving. You're so like a Rasulka, the Witcher continued calmly, that you could deceive anyone. All the more as you're a rare bird, black-haired one. But horses are never mistaken. They recognize creatures like you instinctively and perfectly. Indeed, she is in fact a Bruxa, a higher vampire species whom Geralt has great difficulty fighting. She has powerful screams that send out concentrated shockwaves, can transform into a large bat, and is incredibly agile. He missed. It was so unexpected that he lost his rhythm and dodged a fraction of a second too late. It's extremely rare for Geralt to struggle as he does in this fight. Often the violence is the easy part for him. It's the other forms of conflict he struggles with. But in this case, it's possible he would have lost had Novellan himself not interfered. After a short, desperate two versus one, Novellan himself eventually impales her with a three meter long pole. She didn't shout. She only sighed. The Witcher shook hearing this sigh. As she dies, she pulls herself more and more impaled towards her lover, all while proclaiming her love for him, that if she's to die, he will die with her. 
No one else can have him. Geralt stood, fascinated by the scene, but still couldn't make himself act. As she gets close to Nivellen, he snaps out of it, moving quickly to strike her head from her body. And moments later, Nivellen discovers he has returned to human form. Blood and true love has broken the curse, but there is no happily ever after. Hello and welcome to episode number two of the Podcast of Surprise. And today we're super excited to be covering another short story, A Grain of Truth from The Last Wish. Really, really interesting synopsis there. Thank you for the expertise, expertise of voices, of course, from Mikau there and the narrating from Aziz. Overall, I really enjoyed the chapter and I enjoyed how Sapkowski played Sherlock Holmes with Geralt. It was, it was interesting. During the chapter when I was reading, the, the three wolves symbolism really stood out to me that we're watching and observing Geralt because we have Geralt, much like wolves, having to trust his instincts and Roach's instincts. At first, Geralt kind of takes everything at face value and ignores Roach's instinct, an animal, his his companion. But after talking with Nivellen, the mansion's ruler, it was a lot easier for him to put together why Roach is having this reaction. So I thought it was interesting because Roach didn't like Verena, who, you know, has the appearance of a human and then is more animal-like and beast-like. And she likes Nivellen a little bit more, who is a beast, but cursed in human form. So I thought that was really cool. Roach, in a sense, kind of being like a dog, seeing the the good and bad in people. I'm not saying Nivellen is a good guy, but uh, she definitely had had her instincts. They were like Roach was kind of the MVP, part of the MVP of this chapter for me. And uh, Roach almost as like a a second POV character. What were your uh, thoughts on so the chapter? So I'm going to be the contrary voice. I don't actually like this story that much. I get what Sapkowski is trying to do with, you know, taking off on the Beauty and the Beast. And there's kind of multiple twists that change, you know, the way we would perceive that story. But I think that it kind of is a little bit like pro forma. Like th- there's a lot of stuff that it's just like, well, this isn't Beauty and the Beast. So this has to be in here. And it doesn't so much contribute to the characterization and the themes for me as much. Novellan is a really funny character and he's he's very vivid and written really well. But because he's so well written, he distracts from a lot of the more disturbing elements of the story that feel almost accidental, but are very much there. That makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, I tend to agree with those takes, though. I don't uh, maybe I come to a different conclusion on the story as a whole. I think that I'm really moved by the the descriptions of Verena and the supernatural elements I think are really strong and I like I really like the detective element. I think it's a f- pretty efficient. It's an again one of the shortest stories uh, and he manages to combine horror, love and tragedy and comedy and lore and and a fight and a helpful horse in 35 pages. I I do I, like I agree with a lot of the criticisms though. Um I think that some of the some of the things Novellan just brushes past are a little problematic. But maybe that's part of the point. I'm not sure. And I think that there might be some a few things lost in translation. That's always something we have to be aware of. Not that it would make Novellan look better. It might actually make him look worse. Just just pointing out <laughs> that there's always the issue of translation. And we may there may be a few key words that, that have a different meaning. Not that that would necessarily change a lot, but it might change a little and it might change a lot. But yeah, I think it's pretty strong. But I, I think also um, another... 
maybe fair criticism is that Geralt isn't, uh, his, his personality doesn't come out a lot in this one. Yeah, the character development is not rich in this one, is yeah, it? Yeah, not as much. This is apparently, chronologically, perhaps the first story outside of the Vicenna story, uh, which is odd because you would think that that's a time to really develop the character the most when he's new. So you almost feel like this would be better if this story were later in the timeline when Geralt is more familiar and the lack of characterization wouldn't be, we would all know him so much better. So, you know, that it's almost like that it would have fit better later. To me, that's a minor thing because it's a short story and we have these things developed elsewhere. It would be a huge problem if, if this were a longer story or if, if more depended on it. But maybe I'm just defending it too much. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's really interesting because, you know, reading The Witcher, the first story that we did last time, we all kind of felt that like this was a, a great introduction and like a lot, there was a lot of richness hidden there and a lot of, you know, even though Geralt is very taciturn and doesn't say that much, he's still, he still comes across very powerfully. And I don't think that that's the case as much in this story. And again, like a lot of it just is, you know, there, who knows, like this was written like 30 years ago, but it does feel like, like Sapkowski was just kind of like really enjoying writing Novellan and really enjoying the little twist he had in mind. And the rest of it wasn't as important because a lot of the time it's, it's not unusual that you get a, Hello, Geralt. I've just bent you. Let me tell you everything about myself and all of my problems. Um, but, <laughs> but usually Geralt reveals a little more about himself than he does here. And the setting is super cool. So that's why it feels a little bit disappointing that we don't get as much character development like we got in, you know, for example, you know, the big Shriga fight and everything that's going on in Temeria. So that was kind of an interesting thing. But I, I, I do agree with you, Mikhail, in the sense that, you know, kind of um, how Sapkowski is framing this within the short story is like showcasing Geralt's connection to animals, Roach, and we're seeing that connection and we're seeing, you know, Geralt's connections to monsters and his knowledge of that, but not as much characterization and growth from Geralt. It's not one saving grace on that point is that it's an inversion of what we often see with, with Geralt and his adventures, where a lot of times the conflict is difficult and the violence is easy. <laughs> the fighting is easy. This time, at first, the conflict is tricky because there's all these really strange, unusual circumstances and, and moral. Some of the moral conundrums are straightforward. Well, that would mean they're not conundrums. Some of the moral aspects are not are are straightforward, and some of them are conundrums. Overall, there's a lot of difficulty in parsing through what's happened with all the supernatural elements. But once Geralt figures out that there's a Bruxa in play, and it's not a Rusalka. It becomes rather simple. It's like, okay, well, she has to die. She's a murderous vampire. <laughs> Before that, it's like, yeah. well, live and let live. How evil is she? How evil are you? Uh, you're intelligent, so I won't kill you, blah, blah, blah. But then, and so that's, those are recurring themes of Geralt judging the situation based on the, the, the ethics of the thing he's trying to kill or presented with killing. <laughs> It, 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 it's it's funny how it's reversed, right? Because we got the we do have this murderous creature who has to be killed, and then we have Nivellen's dilemma. He thinks he's in love, but he's being manipulated. So it's like Gerald kind of has to act in this situation, you know, because yeah. <laughs> Nivellen is, you know, being taken over. <laughs> 
I think this is a, a good time to pivot into our next section, which is craft, and discuss the storytelling. Mikhail, you have a really interesting section here. So yeah, let's start so with you. Yeah, so part of what struck me was that I do think that the craft of the story is heavily invested in the retelling of Beauty and the Beast. Um, obviously, a lot of the stories in this book are retellings of fairy tales, and a lot of them work really well, mostly because they become very embedded in the world of the Witcher, and they are used to complement the story and provide a bit of meta irony. Whereas this, I think, you know, not it's it's not badly done. Like it's, there's definitely a lot of there's definitely twists and original things there and and cute you know references. But I think a lot of the story is so determined to be Beauty and the Beast that it it kind of loses itself. We have to have roses. We have to have a magical manner. We have to have a curse. We have to have a curse broken. But a lot of the, these elements are almost more aesthetic than they are plot or organic character to me. Because it, I feel like Sipkowski really wants to go for that twist of like, beauty is actually the beast. And she's, oh, she's, she's the vampire with the books of the, you know, and that is kind of the story almost ends so quickly after you find out that twist, and then it really does end on a very abrupt note. It's much more tragic as well. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> it's but yeah, it does. It doesn't stand on its as as far as like craft being like a well crafted story of itself. It doesn't stand on its own for me as much as some of the other stories do. I would. I definitely agree with some of those criticisms for sure. And I think, but I, I also think that. There are some really excellent passages. I think like if you hone in on certain areas, there's some some parts are written really well and that definitely it definitely has that going for it. For example, I like I like some of the transitions, the way it goes from ominous to then kind of eases back and becomes a little silly, which is intentional, and then but you know it's going to get dark again somehow. You know the tragedy's going to return. It can't just be all a, a, a laugh fest. I think the horror elements are fairly strong here. They're brief, to be sure. They're not like throughout. They're not constantly haunting every scene and you know something awful is going to happen. But when they emerge, I think they're quite strong. I, I definitely uh, really like the descriptions of the Bruxa and the way she interacts with her telepathy. He heard singing. He didn't understand the words. He couldn't even identify the language. He didn't need to. The Witcher felt and understood the very nature, the essence of this quiet, piercing song which flowed through the veins in a wave of nauseous, overpowering menace. I think that's really cool. <laughs> and then there's a, there's a kind of a follow-up here where Geralt is playing the role of explaining the twist. He explains what the Brooks has been doing because, well, she doesn't speak English, so someone has to explain <laughs> it. <laughs> you like birds, continued the Witcher, but that doesn't stop you biting the necks of people of both sexes, does it? You and Nivellen, indeed. A beautiful couple you'd make, a monster and a vampire, rulers of a forest castle. You'd dominate the whole area in a flash. You, eternally thirsty for blood, and he your guardian, a murderer at your service, a blind tool. But first he had to become a monster not a human in a monster's mask. It's it's cool because Sapkowski is playing with so many different genres mm -hmm. in this chapter, right? Like he's mixing the genres and like as he said the transitions are pretty cool. The set that the the horror setting was really fun yeah. in this chapter. The 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 creepy vibes. And then he <laughs> manages to bring the humor back. I just think it's so I think it's hilarious. I think all three of us really laughed at the there's this kind of violent 
climactic horror scene and that's followed by all this blood and this tragic ending. But in between, <laughs> there's just a guessing game. <laughs> it's like, are you uh, <laughs> are you an owl? <laughs> it's like you think you know Geralt would have better knowledge of uh, what's going on, but this must be pretty. Like early on in his Witcher, his Witcher learnings, like he was, yeah, at least in his younger years, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would fit pretty well. I like that idea that he maybe yeah. this is a little not young Geralt, but younger. Well, he is. I mean, he is <laughs> showing off to Roach earlier, right? He's like, well, we know it's not a werewolf because then it wouldn't have been this, and there aren't these here. So yeah, maybe maybe this is like just out of school, Geralt. <laughs> 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 Which is so funny because he doesn't trust Roach and then Roach ends up being right. So it's like, who do we trust? An animal? <laughs> yeah, or it, it a is witcher? a very funny story. And actually, in that way, it's kind of a bit of a microcosm of, of generally, I think, the series because it does fluctuate in tone a lot. And I think that's very intentional. The thing with the humor is it's kind of a double edged edged sword in this story for me because it is so enjoyable like it really it's really funny you know like this monster storming out of the castle and then and yelling and Geralt's being like okay what you got you know and then him like (laughs) pulling up his pants and just like you know it's it's really funny um and 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 Nivelle's dialogue is really well done and I think that glosses over a lot of the darkness that actually is there not just in the beginning of the and the end of the story but the stories that are being told um you know like we have the murder of these two people that it's it's just kind of like oh well oh well these two people were horribly murdered oops uh, yeah surprise <laughs> there's there's the rape and the suicide of the priestess there's you know Novellan being yeah. like yeah so um i went crazy and i murdered all the servants and you know like lol <laughs> and <laughs> it's like you understand i turned into a monster right yeah, it's okay and just the way it's told i think allows you to breeze past a lot of these things unless you're really like paying attention mm. to it. i think maybe it was like i was i was skeptical reading the witcher for the first time so maybe i was more attuned to things like this um as opposed yeah. to just like hey this is just a story whereas i was just like i'm expecting sexism so maybe i found some sexism in the character that is but yeah i mean that is all to say that the humor is extremely effective in, in what it does and uh, is, is really enjoyable. So let's actually dive into the topic of consent then, because this is something that you highlighted. In, so we have our, our document, everyone, and we kind of write and we have favorite parts, which we want to talk about and stuff. And this is something that I think that we should talk about because it yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways this story is sort of all about consent. You know, you have you have that joke that goes around the Internet that like Beauty and the Beast is just Stockholm Syndrome and it's not really. But, it, but consent is obviously an issue in Beauty and the Beast stories. The first time it really comes across it, it is sort of brushed over that Novellan is brought to this temple and the priestess happens to be there and his, his men, you know, strip her naked and force him to rape her. And, you know, like the, the main takeaway, Novellan is like, Oh, that was a bad temple. Like, Oh, poor me. This sucked. And I'm like, Oh, Oh, did it? Did it <laughs> suck for you, you dude? Huh? Okay. <laughs> the idea of like somebody cursing somebody to be what they're experiencing to, you know, to, to manifest their experience of them. Like, cause obviously this priestess was experiencing Novellan as, as a monster. So he would be a monster outside. I think that's a very effective visual and, a, and an interesting way to start a Beauty and the Beast story, you know, as opposed to some of what Aziz will talk about later, where, where the story classically starts. 
But uh, like Geralt's at some point, like, well, you had bad luck raping a priestess of that temple. I'm like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's that's rough. I agree. It, diving deeper into that, it's 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 strange because this is like we said, like your nickname says here, the lion-headed spider, and you, it's not an <laughs> a, ex- acceptable reason to rape a priestess. But Gerald is right that this is a really bad god. <laughs> that is a really bad news, and it's possible that that young teenage Novellan was told that it's okay because this is a dark god, and and his teenage mind accepted that. It doesn't again doesn't make it okay, but you wonder if that's part of the coercion. Like, oh look, this is an evil god. You know, of course it's okay to do whatever, do the worst to them. They're so awful. And if that's the case, I don't know if that's a if that's a lesson or a, a take that Sapkowski intends. It's an interesting one if it is intentional because it it makes you have to reconsider concepts like wishing the worst on your enemies or people deserve bad things because they're bad people. It's really interesting, the religious undertones that are going on here, because we have this idea of penance, and we know that Geralt is not, or at least until later, he doesn't really believe in the idea of destiny. He doesn't believe that for Novellan, too. And we also have uh, appearances versus reality. This is a thing that Sapkowski does a lot. Novellan appears to be a monster, but is not. Verena appears to be a girl, but is not. So he plays with the true nature of the the, the, char- the characters in this episode. Even Roach, we find find out that Roach is uh, a, a lot genius. more in- <laughs> yeah, MVP of the chapter, and we see that Geralt is not as so uh, instinctual and has to rely more on Roach to kind of figure things out. So that 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 was a, a really interesting thing in the chapter for me yeah. too. In, in the next book of stories, Geralt makes very clear that he does not kill dragons and that killing dragons is something that's really beneath him and, and something he's morally against in a way. On the wall and among the amazing description of like this decrepit castle is a stuffed rock dragon that is leaking stuffing. And the way Novellan puts it is the dragon must have been the last one in the area before it got itself killed by Novellan's grandfather. I don't know. I feel like a lot of the things that Novellan says, he comes around to like, he's not the active agent in the sentences, in the, you know, the way he talks about like falling into bed with the sequence of young women who, you know, come to his house. Um, there's, there's just a lot of kind of, you know, oh, it's, it's not, I'm, I'm, I'm the big strong one, but it's really not about me. I'm, I'm not the one in control here. Um, and if you think about control as kind of a parallel theme to rape, that is kind of something interesting um, because there are definitely ways in which Novellan is not in control in the story. Like obviously he is at Verena's um, mercy for most of it, but yeah, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to like characters who clearly have strength and, but keep being like, oh, it's somebody else's fault. It's not mine. Yeah, I totally agree. It's annoying that he, uh, everything else is somebody else's fault, even mm-hmm. though I, if you're really getting into it, there are certain, like you said, there are things that he has no control over that are certainly afflicting him. Um, but at the same time, you're right. He has, there's a lot of, he has a lot more agency than he gives himself credit for. And it's just kind of like, come on, man, you've got more options than this. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> like he's clearly grown in a lot of ways, not, not just physically, um, since, since he was cursed, but he hasn't really grown past 
that idea of like, I am at the whims of more powerful people slash beings. And he kind of substitutes whoever happens to be there, whether it's the father of one of the daughters or, you know, whatever, or Verena, you know, as, as the thing that he can't act against because he's just this, you know, meek little weakling. Yeah. He definitely goes along with things, yeah. right? Like he's going along. He went along with the gang, even though it was coercion. He went along with his his father's and his grandfather's banditry, and he's just going along with Verena. <laughs> he's just like, well, I'm resigned to this. It seems like he's just resigned to everything yeah. that happens. I mean, even at the end, like, Gerald's like, you sure you don't have any enemies? Like, you've done some sketchy stuff, dude. And he's like, oh, no, no. Definitely no. No, no enemies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's it's interesting how nature versus nurture uh, ties in with the appearances versus reality type thing going on. Yeah, he kind of thinks he deserves a lot of a lot of his resignation is just seems to be part of kind of his personality, the way his his life has been. But he also seems to, on some level, feels like he deserves what's happening to him. It's a, which is an interesting balance because he still isn't doing a lot of, about it. He's not trying necessarily to be a better person. He's just sort of accepting, which fits in with his resignation, that he deserves it. So he has some it's, – it's a slightly redeeming feature that he at least be- understands that he's done bad things and deserves to – to suffer for them. He just doesn't have a great sense of how redemption works or how, you know, things like that. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's still a teen, right? Like he's like underdeveloped, like in some ways, I wonder how he's going to do on his own. Like that hasn't learned good values. You know what I mean? Like he hasn't learned like really what's right and wrong until he starts to reflect, you know, in, in this period where he is a beast where he's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, yeah, that was pretty bad. You know? Yeah. Returning to consent issue as well. I think it's interesting that, it gets flipped a little bit with he forced himself on on this woman and then has these other women that don't necessarily have the choice to be there because their father leaves them there. And then Verena has – it's not sexual consent, but she has conquered him. She's not making him sleep with her. He's She's taking his blood, <laughs> which, you know uh, – I don't know if we need to judge what's wor- better or worse there. It's not really important. It's yeah. definitely a bad thing. The lesser evil? <laughs> yeah, and then tele- and then just invading their minds with telepathy, things like that. It's it's like overtones of a of a related theme, which I think is kind of interesting. Let's talk about some themes maybe. Uh there's a, a, a an homage maybe to the theme of the first story which was there was a lot of Dracula homages there. And there's maybe just a little bit more of that here. A, a couple bits we found one was that he's explicitly invited in, which of course is a big part of vampire lore that they can't come in your house unless you invite them. And then there's the scene where Novellan is still feeling out Geralt, he thinks he's he's still wary that Geralt, being a witcher, is there to kill him. And he's like, so what happens if I come at you? If I, even if you pull that sword out you know, and you get it in me, my weight and momentum is going to come on top, you know, I'm going to come on top of you. <laughs> I shouldn't have said it that way. <laughs> <laughs> And then I'll I'll be flat on top of you, pinning you down. And then he says, and then it's teeth that'll decide. What do you think, Witcher? Which one of us has a better chance if it comes to biting each other's throats? <laughs> I'm sure the fan fiction exists, guys. I'm sure it's out there. Novel and Geralt <laughs> fan fiction is already a thing. <laughs> wow. Cursed love. That's another kind of recurring theme, right? We had that in, the, in with the Striga. We're going to have more of it later, and we certainly have it you here. Know, again, I don't know how much of this is intentional, but you have Verena as kind of like the 
physically black and white being with the self-described monster. And that is sort of an early pattern of Geralt and Yennefer and the way they interact because Yennefer is always, always, always described as like black and white, black and white. She wears black and white and her beautiful black hair. And Geralt describes himself as a monster a couple of times, as I recall. So yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting early blueprint for that idea. Yeah, the appearances versus reality thing. We're going to talk a lot about that in the, the lesser evil next week, kind of a preview of like how Geralt is treated as a monster. And then he has to make another incredibly difficult decision in the market where, you know, Renfrey is kind of leaving him with another impossible choice. And it seems that Geralt has to make a lot of those decisions. So I think that's something that the, this lesser evil thread that's, it goes all the way until the last novel. That's just, you know, one of my favorite themes. Yeah, you're right. That's a very prominent theme. I yeah. think there's some elements of that here, but then there's some elements of other recurring themes. Like I noticed that a big part of of the main novels, there's a large section of time where Siri spends some time with the rats. For people who haven't read that far, well, I won't say too much more other than there's a, the concept of bad influences, like older but older but friendly people who take you in and are nice to you, but they're bad people. And that's something Siri faces. So, And this is basically what's happened with Novellan. And it's a question of whether he deserves a second chance. Does, you know, he's not, I don't, I wouldn't call him a paragon of virtue now, but he is, a, he's, he's much more decent than he was. Did he do his time, so to speak? Did he suffer enough? Or is he, is this the kind of thing you can't be redeemed from? Uh, how much does it matter that he was a teenager? It's just these are questions that are relevant to modern society. Like, how do you judge a fourteen-year-old criminal versus a twenty-one-year-old? And you know, it's got to be more than just age, too. It's not just their age; it's got to be other circumstances. So, but I have questions there, and they're not questions we can answer. But I think they're important to raise. It's interesting how Geralt is there to kind of be the judge of that with him doing morally bad things. Like we saw, like killing all those people in the bar to, to, to get in court with King Foltest, those kinds of things. So it's interesting to have Geralt in that position because, you know, he's our main POV and we see him as kind of trying to, you know, do good in the world, kill monsters, keep people from dying. But then he, he does these morally bad things too. You know? Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, like that, that idea of, the corruption of the young and what that like where that comes from like does that come from within you or is that something that's like a, a dark seed that's planted by people treating you in certain ways is something that is going to be a very very prominent theme going forward and so is the idea of Geralt confronting evil and not really knowing what to do about it they definitely are complex and delicate and difficult ideas that Zapkowski wrestles with a lot in the future Maybe that's why Geralt has a little bit more of a feeling for Novellum because he went through the trial of the grasses and stuff like that. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do either, right? Like, um, uh, uh, he had better influences around him. Certainly, Vesemir is a, 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 more, a morally better person. But still, he was affected by being, like, given to be a witcher. You know what I mean? That must be a, a hard thing. And I think Geralt sees some of that in Novellum in that his influences weren't there giving him a good support and, you know, kind of leading him on a better path. So I think in some sense, Geralt does feel sorry for Novellum. Yeah, yeah. I think I agree with that. He he kind of understands being isolated and, and lonely and not having peers. And I think that's a slightly warm part of his story is that 
when Geralt and Nivellen have their face off and it's humorous because he's like, are you really not afraid of me? And he's like, well, should I be? And he's like, nah, not really. <laughs> but should I be afraid of you? And he's like, no, not really. <laughs> and they have that in common that they are like, this is strange to us that, you know, I'm, you're not afraid of me. I'm not afraid of you. That's they're both not used to that. They're both like kind of scary guys or at least. surprise. Yeah. So so that is a, it's a, an odd thing to have in common. And you, you, I think it's a neat concept of people who have very few peers in the world finding something to bond over, even if it's extremely brief. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a powerful idea and something that does motivate that loneliness that does motivate explicitly Nivellen and implicitly Geralt is is also very interesting. One thing that's interesting, we're, we're currently experiencing a pandemic. And I just thought of this, like, you know, as a content creator, I thought of the times where I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll be good through this. You know, I'm creating content. I've been used to this. I've been social distancing for years. But then, you know, having some of that freedom taken away from you when you are isolated, support and love is a very important thing in life. If you don't have that in life, then certainly... Some people act out violently and negatively. And so, so that's, that's an, another interesting thing that I think, like Aziz says, is a more warm thing because Geralt understands some of his suffering and pain. Yeah, I mean, moral ambiguity is a recurring theme in, in this series, and it's a real thing. I mean, we all have – there's lots of people in the real world that – you don't want to just label them good or evil. It's not that simple. But in, in a fantasy setting, it's – it's even there's more potential in different ways because you have these supernatural elements that just I mean, the villain is cursed. You can't really have there's no real world example of, of being cursed. I mean, yeah. you can have things that are effectively curses, but not a literal supernatural curse. But he arguably deserved it. Right. That's part of the ambiguity here. And I really like I, I'm, I'm really happy, to be honest, that we as a as a podcast group here have different takes on this story, because I think that's kind of the point, a part of it. There is with more ambiguity. It wouldn't really, it, you wouldn't really be able to make that great a claim that it's morally ambiguous. If we all agreed on what the moral <laughs> ambiguity was like, that kind of speaks against it being ambiguous. If we all agree, <laughs> that might be another challenge for us. We're not necessarily supposed to settle on an answer. It's not supposed to be like a coin where heads is good and eat tails is bad. This isn't something you can put uh, on a two-sided axis. This isn't binary. It's not you're good or evil. It's not nothing is yeah. that simple, right? And that's a gr I think that's a great inversion and it's something that's fun to play with in a fairy tale world because fairy tales very often do very lean heavily into making good and evil extremely distinct. Fairy tales are full of like if you're really good looking, you're probably a good guy. If you're really ugly, you're probably a bad guy. He does some of the same things he does with Novellan that we discussed with King Foltest. You know, the idea of him and Ada being in love and, you know, him letting Stria kill people in the lower parts of Temeria. There, he does a similar kind of thing with Novellan in this chapter. That's a good point. What about the ending? Because the end of the story is very uh, distinct. It's like, oh, she loved you. She really did love you. Cool. And that's it. We don't, we don't get any fallout or any response to that or anything like that. So do you think that that is a furthering of the moral ambiguity that even though this, this Brooks a creature was so evil and are, are we supposed to be like, oh, she wasn't all bad? Or is it supposed to be like, oh, well, how ironic. And now the curse is broken. And, because I'm not sure. For me, for Novellan, because 
he had this lack of love in his life and he was taught, you know, he wasn't taught these good lessons. So for him, it is more tragic because he finds out that he was being manipulated in this, you know, she wanted to rule the countryside with him as kind of this like, like the Batman symbol, but Novellum as this beast. You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of how I think about it. It's like, oh, we know that manner, that beast. Okay, that's pretty scary. But that's kind of how I think about it. You know, the lack of love is, for me, it's a really scary thing, you know? And it's something that's totally tragic. I think that's a really good take. And I would agree that we should, with Kyle, that we should consider not just whether she loved him, but his level of love to for her and how true that was. But to speak to your main point, McCall, yeah, I think it's super interesting because what is love to Abruxa? Like, you can argue that she was possessive and jealous, and that's not love, but this is a different species. What is, like, this is a human idea of love. We can't force, as strange as it may sound, we can't force our definition of love even onto Abruxa. <laughs> And whatever, I mean, whatever she felt, it was enough to fulfill the terms of, of breaking the curse. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Certainly by the rules of yeah. the world. <laughs> or or at least according to the little lion-headed spider. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, you got it. <laughs> With Novellan, too, it's interesting, like, his upbringing. He quite clearly never had male role models that, showed him a healthy relationship like his mother isn't even mentioned that i can recall it was his father and his grandfather and they were real scumbags but then verena comes along and is of a similar ilk with you know even though a different species obviously because she comes along with the same intent her his family has ruled that area with violence for generations and now she's just coming along to do the same but with supernatural powers instead of with human powers. And that's really interesting, too, because if it was just bandits, Geralt would not have interfered uh, unless they attacked him or, you know, it was like right in front of him or something. But Geralt's not a bandit hunter. That, that's why it's so interesting to see Roach's reaction to all of this, because she's an animal but can sense monsters. And, like, it's just so interesting how they're toying with a, a, the animal-monster-human dynamic. The Sapkowski does that a lot, and I really yeah. like that. <laughs> and the the idea of the material, you know, being a substitute for the emotional is really powerful in this novel. It's like, I'm alone, but I don't even have servants, but like all of my needs are met by the house magically, automatically. He substitutes wealth for daughters. I mean, it's unclear how much seduction, it, like deliberate seduction is involved, the girls, but he definitely... It's like, oh, well, first they were scared, then they felt bad for me, then I kind of fostered that, their sympathy with precious gifts. And yeah, so there definitely is that idea of gems and, and silver and gold and pretty things and, and good food being kind of a physical stand-in for love and for, I guess, the things that are harder to put your hand on physically, because love is not a physical thing, obviously. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great take, too, because it, it it really speaks to the nature of the curse. Like, the priestess made it so he would have all his basic needs taken care of, which means he could really focus on how lonely he was and how no one, like, no one likes him. And if the curse is ever broken, well, he's going to not have any idea how to take care of himself because all his needs were met all automatically and he's not learned those skills. So as far as the, the epilogue that we don't get from the story, I think that's a maybe a dark part of it is that he's probably he, there might be still some wealth still in the house. And if so, then he's, he's got that, but he's got no connection to anyone. Like he has to start over without 
basic skills <laughs> and uh, or relationship. Oh, those lion-headed spiders, they're good with their curses. <laughs> how, how about this poetic bit at the end after, right after Geralt cuts her head off? I think part of it is that she was in their head. The Verena was projecting telepathy, screaming and, and yelling and focusing her, her hatred and her evil and her love. And it's just got to get real noisy with all that going through your head. And then all of a sudden it's gone when she's killed. And so I think that's part of it is that there's, there's this release of of her hold that, that she had on them. And it results in this kind of peculiar moment. It's written, like I said, kind of like a poem. What do you guys think of this? Okay, emo Geralt, calm down. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like, the emptiness within me. I'm like, okay, dude. The John Snow vibes. <laughs> yeah, it very much is. Yeah. It's definitely something that will be echoed, certainly in the next story, about kind of Geralt having sort of weird out of body experiences when he comes to contact with particularly feminine magic. Actually, in more. In more than just the next story in a couple different stories. Yeah, it's something to keep an eye on when when Sapkowski makes the writing kind of weird like this. Mm. It could also be like the the idea that you are not necessarily aware that you're missing something unless until you you have it and and you know obviously again like he doesn't want the rooks to there <laughs> but maybe it's oh like man it would be nice to have a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Keep in mind, y'all, that we're almost positive that this is well before he meets Yennefer. So he doesn't have yeah. – he possibly he's never had like a real relationship. He's only just had flings at this point. So, Yeah. But it's interesting how Sapkowski presents this monster and then is – you know what I mean? And Carol, like this yeah. – how he treats Yennefer and how she treats him sometimes is really funny. <laughs> True. Yeah. She's black and white very much here. Black hair, black eyes, white dress and possessive. So I just wanted to make note for, especially if you've read the rest of the series, and I'm not going to specify exactly what's going on because it's quite a big spoiler. Unfortunately, this this partly came about me noticing this because there were no pirouettes in this chapter, <laughs> which bummed me out. We're always looking for pirouettes. You know. There were a lot of half turns, <laughs> a lot of like, you know, but, but we never quite got those pirouettes. But it does say that Geralt jumped every move he made. Every step was part of his nature. Hard learned, automatic, and lethally sure. Three quick steps. And the third, like a hundred such steps before, finished on the left leg with a hard, with a strong, firm stamp. And then we go to Tower of the Swallows. Siri, who does have a connection to Geralt. <laughs> I hope that's not a spoiler. Does a move called Three Little Steps, a feint and a lunge in Tearsay. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's described as a simple, downright childish attack and faint, which to me kind of is a nice continuity of kind of things that maybe are, are drilled into witchers from a very young age. And Geralt in that scene kind of going back because he keeps trying to fight the Brooks and he keeps missing constantly. So what ultimately allows him to kill her is maybe like a very fundamental move that would be, have been drilled into him. The basic shtick of Beauty and the Beast is it was written in 1740 by someone with a really cool long name, Gabriel. Wait, wait, Canadian, Canadian, we need the Canadian. Oh yeah, Kyle, will you say this name for us? Gabriel Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve. Ah, there <laughs> it is. That's the stuff. Ladies, I'm single. <laughs> 
she, like I said, she wrote it in 1740, and then she died not that long after, maybe 12 years later, and then another woman took it, altered it, and gave Gabrielle Suzanne no credit whatsoever. Most of us would be most familiar with the Disney versions. So that's where we've our Beauty and the Beast knowledge mostly is going to lie. But important to note, that would not be the case for Andrzej Sapkowski. He would not, or Sapkowski, he would not have been first familiarized with the Disney versions <laughs> of Beauty and the Beast. I would not think. I think he would have read perhaps some of the more original stories or some of the later variations on it. Anyway, the main thrust of Beauty and the Beast is a merchant who loses his wealth he has also stumbled on this manor, kind of like the Witcher has, and he's, he goes in, and there's no one there, and there's food and drink and just free stuff, and he's like, okay, well, this is nice. And as he's leaving, he remembers that his daughter, Beauty, wanted uh, a rose, and she had asked for a rose in lieu of something fancy. All his other daughters wanted something fancy, but she's the good, youngest, prettiest daughter, and she says... Oh, all I want is a rose and for you to be safe. And so the father, as he's leaving this magical manor, is like, oh, a rose. I'll pick her a rose. And Beast gets really angry, much like Beast does in this story when Geralt... Geralt doesn't even pick the roses. He just goes in for a sniff. But still, it's the same trigger point for the Beast who is angry that this person would take advantage of his hospitality and then steal from him. In his fury... The beast is terrifying, and the merchant says, please let me go. I have daughters. I have a family to take care of. And Beast takes pity on him and says, okay, you can go, but one of your daughters has to come live with me. He's like, well, that's awful, but what's he going to do? He, it's either that or be killed. And if he's killed, he can't take, a, take care of the rest of his family. So he goes back to his house, and Beauty, being this dutiful best child, volunteers for this job to go live with Beast for a while. And she does so, and she's, you know, not into him. He's trying to sleep with her, and she refuses. And every night she dreams of a handsome prince she thinks is somewhere in this house. And he's trapped in the house, like hidden in the basement or something. So it's kind of similar in that the, mistake, the mistaken identity, thinking these are two different people, but it's actually one person. She eventually figures out that she's dreaming of Beast himself, but that he's been transformed. So she goes back home and her father and family guilt her into staying, even though she had promised to go back to Beast. And she has dreams again. And Beast is dying. She has these awful dreams that Beast is dying. And so she goes back to save him. And her dreams were true. He was dying. And she gives him water to save him. It dawns on her as she's feeling compassion for him that she does actually love him despite his appearance. So that's basically the story of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, there's a happily ever after after that, which, of course, there is not a happily ever after in this story. So beauty is very much the opposite version of Verena, except for the most crucial part, I suppose, which is the true love of Beast. Other than that, she's the most perfect example of, of, a, of an ideal woman for that era. And that's the point. This story was quickly adapted to be used to prepare young women for arranged marriages. It was like almost like propaganda for arranged marriages in its day. Beauty and the Beast features a magic horse, which, hey, Roach is not magical, <laughs> but pretty, pretty awesome. <laughs> I'd, say, I'd say Roach is magical. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, some, some smaller thematic elements like the magic house, Beast not really being a beast. There's also um, a magic ring that if she spins it around her finger three times, she gets transported back to the manor. Well, what we have in this story is Geralt and Roach stumbling on a devil's ring, 
which causes them to turn around and go back to the manor. Also, the ring on... Wasn't there a ring on one of the corpses as well? On the fingers? Yes, absolutely. Great catch. The armor has a... Has a ring on his finger that has the initials of the Armorer's Guild. And yeah. Beauty and the Beast in the story even get uh, initials on a ring as well, um, like B and B. They get the same kind of, it's very similar. So it's another little homage. The water thing is also important. When she finds Beast dying, she restores him with water from a nearby spring, which is also what Roach is drinking from when they notice the Devil's Ring. And when Geralt shows up and, and Novell is trying to like say, you should leave, don't stay. He's like, well, how about, some, can I have some water? <laughs> so like I said, there's even more than that, but I've been going off on this for a while. And you get the point, I think, that there is a lot. <laughs> Your beauty for this disease. Thank you. <laughs> I am really, you know, I, I can't deny that I'm, I, as, a, as a writer, I'm impressed by how thoroughly he manages to get to embed all of this into the story. And in some ways, quite subtly. You, you will be the first to grow weak, sorcerer. I will kill you. The brooks's lips didn't move, but the witcher heard the words clearly. They resounded in his mind, echoing and reverberating as if underwater. I don't know. Is it is it an X sound also? Is it like isn't there like a huh sound that? Bruha. It generally means witch, but of course, in this context, uh, with the, the Bruxa or Bruja, Portuguese version is a vampire witch, a witch that became a vampire. So that's a pretty cool double whammy of, of supernatural elements. That's called leveling yeah. up, folks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, she is badass. <laughs> so dark-haired young woman. Apparently, they're always women. Maybe there's a few exceptions. That's uh, we have. I'm not aware of any male. They, they up, did but- say... Uh, appearance uh like they frame it in a way that it can be both genders i believe you usually dark hair in appearance meaning that it can be both i genders. see that's cool yeah. okay and then they but their their natural form apparently is a a black bat with huge fangs and <laughs> yeah that's your natural that's form. terrifying yeah right <laughs> it's, it's got banshee as screams too during their fight gail almost like like he would have bit the dust if it wasn't for quinn one of his uh, yeah. excellent signs for those of you who play The Witcher and also like the books, uh, which is basically like a little force field <laughs> that he can cast. Some magic. And, if, and apparently, in addition, it fits in with this whole scheme of telepathy and how she can get into heads. Uh, people's heads is, is giving the nightmares. That's kind of a related power. And that's where Novellan's bad dreams were coming from. And apparently, this is part of the enslaving process. If you think about, say, Dracula, if we go back to Dracula and think about how Dracula would slowly take over people's minds, they would be having bad dreams. It would keep them up at night. Their sanity would fray over time, and that would make them weaker and easier to manipulate. So there's a little bit of supernatural to it, maybe a lot of supernatural, but also just general psychology where you just, people who can't sleep are not, (laughs) <laughs> you know, not all there. Uh, everybody knows that one. We all, we all have experienced. Oh, damn. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not all there then. <laughs> so it's interesting to see how Geralt is, is trying to figure all this out, right? He's, of course, he's on the wrong track thinking about who this person is or where they're coming from. There's some interesting points he makes where he's asking Novellan, do you, do you have missing time? Do you wake up with muddy feet that you can't explain? And he's like, no. He's like, no, I, I, nothing, none of that's happening. And that's kind of, Geralt can't quite figure that out. 
And this touches back to what we were talking about before. Maybe this is a sign that this is a less experienced Geralt, that he's a little younger, that he hasn't had as much experience with some of these cases. Maybe ten year, if this had happened 10 years later, he wouldn't have mistaken her for Rosalka or, or something like that. You noted all of the, in the last episode, you noted all of the awesome influences for Striga. There's quite a few different nationalities and influences that Sapkowski used to, likes to play on. Alps are German, Mullahs are Romani, Rasalkas are Slavic, Nymph is Greek. So it's pretty interesting that the Striga and the, the Brooks uh, both have like multiple influences. Yeah. So they have something in common there, which is pretty cool. Yeah, at one point she shakes her head like she said no when he asks, are you a mula? And she doesn't say anything. She just shakes her head, but he still feels it. It says it's expressed as the hiss which reverberated through his bones, which I just think is so cool. That's a really neat way because even her head shake sends a message into his mind that's it's not just fully words that are being transmitted. It's a really neat detail of telepathy. I thought that was really cool. You know what's interesting and, and that I thought about a little bit? Could Roach sense this telepathy a little bit like as they're approaching their thing? Because she, she feels the fear, right? She feels that fear and Roach is kind of this outlet for that experiencing of fear because Geralt's not as scared, right? And Roach is more the one that's like, oh, this is not good. Yeah, that's you know. a good point. Like he he does the uses the sign of Axia to calm her several times, but yeah. he doesn't. He says he doesn't bother with it when he returns. So maybe maybe Roach was just going ah that whole time. Because <laughs> Axia is a way to influence uh, people's minds as a form of mind control, and then we see a like kind of the worst version of it from Verena <laughs> later on. So there is kind of two different versions of mind control that we see in this in this chapter. <laughs> I wish we had more information on the cult of the lion-headed spider, but yeah, she something yeah. about the love and blood love and blood was part of what she was yelling about when she was cursing him. So I I guess like it must have been something like you will like you will experience love, but it will end in blood or something Ooh. like that, like that the the love will die, which is kind of also really Awkward in terms of like, okay, so the, the woman has to be sacrificed for, yeah, your, right? for your redemption. Great. Is this a nod to the concept of the la of Geralt's wish from Ooh. the... Oh, the maybe. That's interesting. Every single time we talk about curses and being reversed, which we did last time also, I just keep having that line from Into the Woods in my in my mind. You wish to have the curse reversed. I'll need a certain potion first. <laughs> and then, yeah, so... I, I just wanted to give a shout out to apparently the anonymous woman who is who who Verena tortures to death. Yeah, and what is that all about? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's really awkward. I I and it's also even possible. Like it's oh. written so obliquely that it might not even have happened. Like we don't know that they're human bones. It could like the first time I read it, I think I assumed that like it was just the Bruxa that was screaming that sounded like a, a tortured woman. But that's not what Geralt thinks. I don't know if we can trust what Geralt yeah. is thinking here. If it had been the Bruxa, it would have been telepathy. And it sounded like it was real screaming. And I think he would have been able to tell the difference. So, yeah, I think it had to be some some other poor victim. Which mm. is, yeah. Sorry, random victim. She doesn't want any, any other women coming around the manor. <laughs> She's very, she is really keeping that on lockdown. Do not mess with Bruxa. <laughs> 
So a good example of where a trans, the translations may have gotten slightly <laughs> off, and this isn't off, it's just maybe the, the, the less ideal choice, is the use of the f- phrase monkshood as a herb. For example, when Geralt scans the tree line after finding the dead bodies, he's like, well, this isn't a werewolf, but just in case, I'm going to pull out my silver. And he puts this wreath of monkshood over Roach's neck. And then when he's sitting up all night with his sword over his knees, he's throwing monkshood into the fire every once in a while. Well, monkshood is is wolfsbane. I think that might have played better if they just called it wolfsbane in the story. But whatever, small thing. More importantly is this concept of a devil's ring <laughs> or a fairy ring or an elf ring or an elf circle or a pixie ring. Those are all the various real world terms. Uh, I sadly didn't have 50 different names to drop like we did for um, Jimson weed and devil's weed, all that one that we had last time. You there were so many names for that, right? <laughs> uh, it's a naturally occurring ring of mushrooms that happens all over the world, there's like 60 different types of mushrooms that can form circles like this. In ancient times, people believed that the circle represented where fairies or elves or pixies were dancing or or witches in the case of a devil's ring. So depending on the culture, depending on the people, depending on the village, they would have similar but different beliefs about what this circle meant. Nowadays, with science, we understand how these things form. It's, it's actually kind of fascinating. There's a 600 meter, meaning 2,000 foot one oh. in France that was 700 years old. Like, no joke, a 600 meter wide circle of mushrooms in France. I was hoping it was still there, but I couldn't find pictures of it. So I presume it's no longer there. Fungi were one of the first life forms on the planet. So that's, they're plotting uh. to kill us, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they are. At least they're, they pl- if they're not plotting to kill us, they're plotting to alter our minds in interesting ways. <laughs> Sounds like, like a Bruxa. Way, wait, <laughs> I see what you're doing there. <laughs> So it's a neat concept, right? You have these devil's rings, these naturally occurring mushrooms. So people say that they're formed by a witch dancing or a fairy or an elf. And that's where it comes in here, because in a in a supernatural world like the continent, the, the setting of the Witcher, of course, there's going to be superstitions about circles of mushrooms. And of course, people are going to think they're devils or witches or fairies or elves because those things are real. Well, not devils, as we know from Edge of the World, but <laughs> the other things are real. <laughs> the the point being, Geralt knows this too, and that's why he's like, Roach, that's just an ordinary devil's ring, which means it's just regular mushrooms. But what happens is he realizes that since Roach reacted to it, it must be one of the actual supernatural rings. One of the ones that really was formed by a witch or an elf or a fairy rather than a naturally occurring one. And that's what leads him to the same realization that Novellan likes Roach. So and Roach likes Novellan and Roach wouldn't have been impacted by Rosalka, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the it's a really neat trigger for him to realize all this. But there's one little other deep bit of lore here, which is that in the real world, the belief of devil's rings and and fairy rings, etc., involves a specific date, which is Walpurgis Night, or Beltine, which is, of course, the same day that we talked about last uh, short story, which is the same day Siri is born, and that's just another callback to the supernatural beliefs from human society that revolve around the changing of seasons. You know what's so great about the Devil's Ring, too? It ties into our last segment, Funniest Moments, because when that's happening, 
Geralt's trying to calm Roach, and he goes, animals like me. And he goes, sorry, Roach, it turns out you've got more brains than me. So, <laughs> so I, I found that really funny. <laughs> that was one of my funniest moments. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, mine is when Novella says, ha, Novella roared so powerfully, the candle flames fell horizontal for a moment. And that's just <laughs> some of, you know, Sapkowski's just really evocative, great brief writing that you wouldn't necessarily expect, but like pops into your mind instantly. Uh, yeah, I love that. I love that line too. It really makes me think of Looney Tunes. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just I just picture Bugs Bunny. There is an animated quality to it, right? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love just his repeated a pox on it. It's just so over the top and kind of. I wonder if that's a translation thing too. Like, I wonder if that's really, you know, if it's an expression <laughs> because all even little things like Roach, like looking reading up about Roach and all that, uh, like. That's a nickname. It's 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 probably better translated as Rochi, you know, because he's supposed to be. It's a real real affectionate, and so you wonder about little things like that. But my favorite favorite line, I think, is "Listen, you, are you really not frightened of me?" <laughs> and then and then you like McCall, you pointed out earlier. <laughs> then he pulls up his baggy trousers. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> of course, that you could see why we're not frightened of you, Mister Baggy Trousers. <laughs> I mean, <it's, laughs> like I was like, oh no, yes, you're very scary. And also a nod to, I could, my teeth are so strong, I could bite through chair legs. You want to see me do it? And he's like, Gerald's like, not really. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> he's like, it's probably a good idea. I used to bite through lots of chair legs and there's not very many whole chairs left in this house. <laughs> I love that one also. It's like so absurd, but I love it so much. <laughs> Ryan Byrne says, what do you think Nivellen did post-curse? He might be uh, counting his blessings, so to speak. I spoke a little bit about of the curse kind of being like a penance. If you, uh, this is a second chance. How many people get second chances after something like this? Well, what he did may not be forgivable to some, and I agree with that. Hopefully, he finds a little bit of peace. Yeah, hopefully he, he, he chilled out, did some self-reflection, maybe took a spa day, and maybe... You know what? Maybe he opened a school. Or... Gave his money, like started distributing his money, not just to the people who had pretty daughters, but to general, you know, he start he started a school for girls. That's what he did. The, the <laughs> University of Verena. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the podcast surprise episode two. In episode three, we will be discussing the lesser evil. You can spread the word and support the pod by leaving us review. It really helps out the podcast. Once again, thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>